guys, welcome back to Associated and welcome to our fifth week working remotely in isolation, being, you know, responsible humans of society. How are you doing, Francesca? I'm doing all right, thanks. Yeah, it's sunny today, which is always nice and I'm up in the countryside. So very nice to enjoy it. Yeah, I think um, if, if you can get out and be in the country, I think that's a very good place to be right now. And another good place to be is right here on the Associated Podcast, because we've got an awesome speaker today. We have Seb Wallace from Triple Point on the line, who's kindly lent us this time. Welcome, Seb. Hello. Thank you very much. How has your isolation been? Well, I, I certainly live in one room now, the lounge, which is basically where I wake up and go to bed. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm certainly going to bed a lot later than I ever was when I was working properly and struggling to find a routine. But yeah, I'm in a good space now. I'm actually, I'm actually quite liking it. It's quite nice. There's no commute. There's more time to think. But, uh, but it will be nice to be next to some people in real life soon, I think. So you've grown a beard. Yeah, yeah, I'm very cliche, you know. I just thought, well, if there's going to be one chance to grow my very thin facial hair into something <laughs> resembling a beard, this it was now. My wife hates it and my grandma loves it. So uh, <laughs> who's more important? Yeah, no, it's very true. Who is more important? But you're, you're not alone, actually. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've been doing quite a lot of pub quizzes and the number of my guy friends who have decided to do the same as you is is high. Uh, and, and one in particular was a real shock because no one knew how impressive <laughs> he could grow his beard because he's an accountant, so right? He, he goes for the sort of city slick look normally. We were a complete shock. <laughs> yeah, the danger with trying to grow a beard is that you, you show everyone how, how unmasculine you are when you can't do it, which is definitely where I sit. Well, no one can see you on this podcast, so <laughs> people can only imagine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm very excited to get started. Would it be best to do the triple point pitch, so to speak? What, what do you guys invest in? What stage, etc.? Yeah, I think that, yeah, definitely. So Triple Point's been around for about 15 years now, starting in 2004. And we have about 1.5 billion under management um, across multiple strategies. And one of those strategies is venture. And in venture, we have two funds. And um, we raise anywhere from 10 to 30 million a year, which we aim to deploy annually, uh, in anywhere from 10 to 25 deals. We're predominantly a seed fund, uh, we focus pre-Series A is what we say, although we also do do Series A deals. And in fact, a couple of our most recent deals this year have been Series A deals. Um, but our bread and butter seed, and we do about 10% of our fund pre-seed as well. So, you know, just the idea and a piece of paper. And um, our ticket sizes range from 200K, obviously that's near the pre-seed level, up to just over a million. So it really depends on the size and we're quite flexible. We lead if it's a seed round, but we co-invest if it's a series A and we're generalists in what we invest in. Um, although we do have our own individual preferences, and, you know, as everyone does. But yeah, we generally look, look across the board um, and, and as, long as, the, as long as we're investing in line with our fund mandates. And the two funds that we have are a B2B technology fund um, and that invests seed as well. And 
we're looking there anything that's not necessarily iot or hardware just because of the margin concerns that some people have in those businesses but with those exceptions we look at pretty much all technology across multiple sectors and then we also have a a b2b or b2c social impact fund and it's a venture fund so it's still looking for venture style returns perhaps a little bit moderated not necessarily 100x but you know deals that are confidently going to grow fast and consistently but are focusing on a specific areas and and those areas are health education young people inequality in the environment so we look at a lot of health tech in that fund we look at a lot of ed tech and we look at deals that might be software-based clean tech so software that's used in the building industry for example in order to ensure that that the building's done more effectively or efficiently so that there's less environmental impact and you were saying that everyone on your team has individual preferences. So what are your preferences? Well, I personally find health tech fascinating, mainly because you get that kick of, oh, I'm actually helping the world as you make your investments. Um, FinTech as well is something that I look at a lot. And in fact, our whole team does. And I think that's really a, a product of being a, a London-based seed fund means that there are a lot of good FinTech businesses. So those, those are two areas. But then I've also done quite a bit of investing in HR tech, um, which also spans learning and development as well. And I think that area is really interesting because while the workforce is changing drastically, the way we're working is changing drastically and has changed drastically over the past few weeks. Uh, but, but the wider trend is that the way we're working and, and how we want to be treated by our employers is changing. And that means there's opportunities for technology. But, but yeah, so those are probably the two or three areas that are of most interest to me. And there's a lot of interest in, in the ed tech area, I should say, as well. Although it's very difficult to invest in ed tech because ed tech is very important in the sense that every business's product has a real impact, a real positive impact, even if it's for profit. But if you're selling into the UK maintained schools sector, it's a very difficult sector to gain traction in. Similar to, in some ways, the NHS can be, unless you're familiar with it. And so that's an area that's of interest, but I haven't been able to do as much investing in that area because of what I said is just structurally can be quite difficult. Mm, Definitely. And in terms of some of your portfolio companies, are there any that you're particularly excited about? Obviously the right answer all of them. (laughs) Yes. Everything's (laughs) fantastically exciting. No, no. I mean, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of exciting stuff. I mean, I mean, just two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, one of our portfolio companies, Thrift, was on Dragon's Den and they they won some investments. That was quite fun. What does Thrift do? Thrift is effectively trying to be a, a reseller as a service. So working with corporates and individuals to take secondhand or unsold clothing and sell it effectively through its marketplace to people who would buy secondhand clothes, whilst also donating a third of its revenues to charity, which is higher than the operating margin of a charity shop. So it benefits charities, it also benefits corporates, and it, and it benefits consumers who want to get rid of or buy secondhand clothing. And, uh, and that's, so that's a particularly interesting business. That's in our impact fund, um, as you can imagine. And another business which is in our BCT, B2B technology fund, is Quit Genius, which we invested in in the Series A recently. And that business is particularly interesting at the moment because uh, it is a digital therapeutics uh, tool used to help people stop smoking and it's sold into large corporates in the United States where health is often something on the balance sheet of the large corporates either through insurance or through their own group plans 
And so people who are smokers in a workforce actually cost the businesses balance sheet bottom line. They cost the business bottom line money if there's obviously smokers because there's a higher risk of um, illness in that population. So incentivizing them to move away from smoking is a very important health and financial priority for a lot of businesses in the US particularly. And right now, smoking has been identified as a risk factor for COVID. So there is obviously increased interest in tools that are modern and effective to help people stop smoking. And this is a tool which is is effectively able to give blue-collar workers who are in the most need right now, who can't work remotely, might smoke. It's a real opportunity for them to be helped and supported in a time when they might be at higher risk than usual. So that's a really interesting uh, business as well. And in in light of that, I mean, I I could be completely wrong, but when you evaluated the business uh, in terms of how many smokers there are right now, even since... I've known about the concept of smoking that so many people have stopped and it's a lot less cool now to smoke than it was, say, 10 years ago or or, or the health risks are now much well known. In, say, 10 years' time, obviously the aim is to stop people smoking full stop or certainly reduce it to a very small percentage and therefore there's not really a need for that product. Um, So... Was that a question you asked them when evaluating, okay, what's your market share? Obviously, you're kind of counterintuitively trying to get people to stop, which means less usage of your own product. So how did you weigh up that when you made an investment decision? No, I mean, that's completely right. I mean, just to give you an idea of the scale of smoking, despite the fact that we think smoking's decreasing in prevalence, which it certainly is overall and definitely is in in the Western world. In the US, there are 40 million adult smokers and around the world, there are 1 billion people globally who smoke, you know, one in seven of us smoke. So it's still a a tremendous uh, addressable market. And if you're looking at an investment and where it can potentially grow from now over, you know, typical holding period, this business could grow phenomenally, even if it were to take on that market and be highly effective, which it is relative to other products out there. So the fact that the market is so large allows them to make a big dent and reduce it through their effectiveness and still have an outsized outcome in the midterm. That's the big reason we were able to get comfortable is that the corporates fundamentally want to buy this. So it's large corporate enterprise sales, um, which are defensible. And it's more effective as a product than the competitors out there. But fundamentally, the market's so large and in fact is only beginning to show signs of slowing down in Asia. And it will still be a problem there for decades to come in the same way that smoking in Europe and the US has been going out of fashion for 20 years. But we're still where we are, for example, with with effectively somewhere around 12 to 14 percent of the US adult smoking. That there's definitely room for this this product in this market. So that that's really interesting what you said there. Those two things. So the product has to be better than the competitors. And the market has to be big, and you have to be taking you know a significant proportion of the market share. How do you evaluate that when you you meet startups? How how do you get to that conclusion with them? Yeah, it's really interesting. And when you say how do you evaluate that, I guess what you're trying to get at is when you see someone's market sizing, how do you get comfortable that A, they're a good founding team and B, they have a good market that they can attack, obviously two fundamentals. And 
when you're looking at a business and its market, the market sizing that a founder does, I find is always a fascinating tell of how they think and how they problem solve and how their logic works. Because people who give bottom up market sizings are often people who are really thinking about their problem on the ground. So they're saying, how many customers are there out there? And more importantly than how many customers are there, what pricing model would work to allow me to reach scale effectively and quickly? Because a market sizing is fundamentally a product of the size of the, the customer base and the revenue model that you're going to adopt. And people who don't use a market sizing as an opportunity to test their revenue model are missing an opportunity there. But it's certainly a pro if somebody can give you a very well-reasoned bottom-up market sizing. And, you know, Yosef and the team at Quick Genius were very able to do that. And it made complete sense. And also it gives you faith in a revenue model. As a venture investor, you see many different types of monetization strategy and different markets require different strategies. And you don't always know when you're looking at a particular new product what the right strategy is. And so speaking to a founder who has obviously been living and researching a particular sector and has come up with a strategy that makes sense. It's really important for gaining conviction to do a deal. And I think a market sizing is a great way that you can show an investor why they should have conviction to do a deal. That makes total sense. And I think it's not often discussed or worded like that. So thank you very much. And actually, that that reminds me of perhaps the second time that we met. And it's it's normally at a networking event. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we were getting onto the topic of term sheets. And it really stuck in my, my memory because you're, you're reading through a term sheet, not, not of your own, but of, of another investor. And you were saying that there was a clause in there which would really backfire um, on the founder if they did a certain thing wrong. Obviously, you really cared about the founder's interest. And then I got on to digging a little deeper into your background and I figured out that you were a lawyer and it all made total sense why, you know, you're obviously very impassioned by this uh, contract and that this line item would have certainly caught out an experienced person. So yeah, I wanted to ask whether your background as a lawyer has helped you and more importantly helped your portfolio over, over your time working at Triple Point. <laughs> well, I'd love to say it's helped my portfolio, but I'd have to let them answer that question. But uh, you know, I'll, I'll say yes for now. <laughs> in terms of in terms of how it's helped me, I I'm a big believer that that a venture capitalist is a jack of all trades. If you look at VCs, they come from all across the spectrum. People have been lawyers, they've been bankers, they've been consultants, they've been accountants, they've been entrepreneurs, like all operators and entrepreneurs in the same bucket. Those five things are the key strands of what an VC does. In some way, they do one of all of those things at some point. And and so the best VC is the best uh, person that can cover all of those bases. And in the UK, in the US, different world, but in the UK, um, there aren't many, there aren't many ex-lawyers who are who are venture capitalists. And so it means that alongside people who have been entrepreneurs or operators or finance in finance previously, it adds another skill set that can benefit a fund, obviously, because it allows you to structure deals more more quickly, perhaps. And so there's definitely um, benefit to having that background. But I I think the the fascinating thing about VC is there's just no correct background. Like people evangelize that that you should be an entrepreneur uh, or you should be an operator. And that definitely has a 
uh, a role. And I, I think a rounded venture capital team should have someone who's pretty much come from all of those five backgrounds in order to be really diverse, because none of those five backgrounds is appropriate to cover every base. And obviously, over, over a long illustrious career you know kind of Robin Klein style career uh, you would pick up all all of those five things and be an expert by the end but if you have not spent your whole career as a venture capitalist you know and, and almost nobody has who's you know sub the age of 40 there it's really important that uh, a team has you know a, a wide variety of, of people that includes people with legal background. Awesome and, and what do you bring to the table with your legal skills other than picking apart term sheets? As a transferable skill, having been a lawyer means that you have an attention for detail. So it means that you've gone through many grinding late nights when you've been looking through contracts. And when it comes to doing a deal or working with a founder or looking at how you would structure a a commercial relationship with a new big customer, you can see down the road both the risks and the benefits of taking a certain approach in a way perhaps that, that that somebody without that background might need to experience first before they can have that foresight. And that's just a critical analysis skill that lawyers have. But it was before I became a lawyer and before I was at university, I had a business myself that, that I, I sold to um, a, a friend's dad, actually. And, and so it was an events business. So that was kind of my first ever taste of the working world because I started it when I was 15 and sold it when I was 17, turning 18. And um, I sold it because my mum actually was telling me that I had to stop it in order to focus on my, my schoolwork. And, um, and I, I started it at 15 because you couldn't work then, right? You don't have a national insurance number. And I wanted to buy a... <laughs> I wanted to buy a video camera and all, all spiraled out, out of control into this other thing. And yeah, that I think is a great lesson in entrepreneurship that you can never know how things will turn out in the end from the beginning. And I think it's really important that everyone attributes a degree of what they do to hard work, but also luck. And I think it's really important that everybody respects not just the entrepreneurs who are going to have unicorn outcomes but also the entrepreneurs that have really solid businesses that are generating cash for them you know whilst we don't invest in them as a sector my previous business certainly gave me respect for that type of company it's certainly more common than the venture type of company and a venture backable business and um yeah it's it's a it's an interesting interesting um, alternative for, for entrepreneurs who don't necessarily want venture capital so was that why you were inspired to, you know, after you reached a point where you, you no longer wanted to work in law, looked at venture capital? Because as you said, there's not a huge number, you know, going into venture capital, you've done law. It's more you hear of the private equity or the investment bankers that seem to move across. Was it that I've been an entrepreneur and I know a little bit about this world that made you realize that this industry existed in the first place? <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, actually, when I when I had my business, calling yourself an entrepreneur or founder wasn't that cool. Like I was at school and no one really cared about it. It was just like my little thing. Yeah, it wasn't celebrated that sort of entrepreneur. At least maybe I was too young at the time. But it wasn't like I wasn't going around saying I was the founder of a business like I think a lot of people do now. They say, oh, you know, even if they're a kid, they're like, I'm the founder of a business. So I think culturally it was a bit different. And, and it was only actually when I became a lawyer that I realized what I'd done maybe wasn't, you know, as usual, because you know, I had this idea of what business was, which was only, only my little business that I'd been running. And I'd never done any 
anything else really. And when I started, it was obviously, as you can imagine, going into a big city law firm. It was a bit of a smack in the face. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and I realized relatively quickly that the people there were phenomenally intelligent. And there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on and a lot of skill required or intelligence required. But it, it ultimately wasn't giving me the kick. And, um, and I actually met uh, Justin, who is one of the, the, the partners at Triple Point. He's ex-Betfair and ex-property partner. And yeah, he, re- he recruited me to, to Triple Point and um, yeah, I haven't looked back since. But uh, it wasn't that I was necessarily looking for a venture capital role. I looked back and as I was looking towards that role, it all made sense. It's like, oh, well, yeah, okay. So you've got a legal background, so you understand the deal side. You've had a bit of, you've had a business, you know what's going on there. Okay, but but it was never like, oh, you know, I've seen a vision. Uh, venture capital's for me. I certainly didn't come out of the womb thinking that venture capital was my <laughs> my career calling. But, uh, you know, I love it now. It's uh, fascinating, fascinating job. Um, what I'd like to understand a little bit more is maybe if we can go into the fund itself. You know, you're set up between this impact fund and then, you know, the, the other sectors that you're focused on, how do you divide companies among you or like the, the pipeline among you guys? It's kind of like a free for all, or do you have a geographic focus or um, do you get to kind of follow your passion or interest? Yeah. So as a team, there's five of us, um, four of us that do investing and another investment manager who manages origination, but also, also portfolio management matters. Um, and so out of us, whenever any of us receive a deal, we'll initially do a screening. The way we do it is that we always have at least two investors look at any deal. Our IC is completely separate to our deal team. Our IC is not our deal team. As I mentioned, we're one strand of a wider investment house. So ventures one part and we send everything to our IC, which is great because it's a step away. So it gives us a, a cold towel opportunity to discuss. Uh, discuss sometimes business. it's not great. <laughs> Sometimes it's not great because you can't say, oh, that founder's really amazing. Uh, you know, they just look, they look at the business and say, okay, you think the founder's great? Well, these are our problems with the business. Um, but when it comes to looking at deal flow and how we separate between us, if there is a particular type of deal, like as I said, it might be personnel related HR, learning and development, then I will be one of the people that will look at that deal alongside whoever originally picked it up. And then when we do the deals, um, we all sit on boards of companies and it's really just a product of who has capacity at the time. And we very much mix and match. It's a very flat structure that between the four of us, we would just we would um, share deals between us and and just do do it as is most effective. If we all have time, then whoever received it will do the deal. But there's no territorialness. And I certainly don't go around going, oh, that deal's my deal. It's it's certainly not. It's it's triple points deal. And you know, I I did it and you know I might not be on the board forever I might end up transitioning off the board to another company and somebody else might take it on so it's very much like we invested and as a team we we split it up together and that also benefits the founders because it's not like you just have to think oh that one person that's on my board is the only guy that's going to help us it's like we're all thinking about the other portfolio companies and how how we can help them and it also just makes our lives more interesting right because there's more companies that we can jump into and help out. I don't think that's the norm. I think the norm is probably, what do you reckon? So when I was at Index, for example, things there are pretty delineated. Either your your expertise or also just like your geographic understanding of your network. So they do, do divide it up, at least when I was there, divided it up by geography. 
So it's, we're a UK-focused fund. I should probably have said that at the beginning, but yeah, we're, we're UK-focused. Okay, okay, got it. So that would mean, or yeah. what? what's the requirement? Yeah, it's an, it's an EIS and VCT structure, mm-hmm. so very similar to, to our, our friends at like Octopus, Albion, Downing, or, or all the or Capital, um, mm-hmm. uh, all those sorts of guys. We invest in companies that have a UK office or and at least one employee in the UK, mm-hmm. but they can be from anywhere in the world. And we've invested in Australian businesses before. We've looked at German businesses. We've invested in Swedish businesses, US businesses. So it certainly can be international in the technical sense of the word, Mm -hmm. but in the sense of how we originate the deals and how we do them, there's always a UK nexus. Got it. Okay, cool. I actually had a a follow-up question to the impact fund. Um, Obviously, you know, ESG is such a, big thing right now as it should be and it's probably going to increasingly become more popular more funds are probably going to get more mandates to invest into you know either funds that are investing into the sector or invest directly do you release annual reports on sustainability do you map you know your pipeline or your portfolio to like the UN development goals for example you know, now that we're 2020, and I think the the goals are by 2030, they want to accomplish this like list of 17 things. Is that something that you're actively talk about or even build into your pipeline? Or is it something that, you know, you're aware of? Yeah, so, so in terms of the UN goals, we don't explicitly target those. I mean, obviously, we've looked at them, we've, you know, we touched several of them. Um, but they are quite broad. So you'd expect an impact fund to touch quite a few of them just by its nature. But what we do do is each year we publish, a, in, in conjunction with the good economy, we publish an impact report. And actually, whilst not topic for necessarily this call, um, we actually, as Triple Point, have a, have a wider impact focus. So we work for the government on a, a part of the business that I don't touch in Triple Point. We work for the government and some of their um, efficient energy structures, um, some of their efficient energy funding. We've got a big real estate fund that deals in impact social housing. So it's all about uh, helping um, vulnerable people with um, learning difficulties get home and get get housing and then obviously our impact fund our venture fund which is the, the impact fund that I work with which focused on the areas that I mentioned earlier so we do have an overall report that we release um, I'm not sure whether it goes publicly or it goes to our investors I'd need to check that but we definitely do report each year and and in fact report more more frequently than each year and mm-hmm. um, and certainly have the UN goals in mind yeah well good to know and in terms of deal sourcing you were saying you know, your investment remit is pretty broad um bar you know to the stage of investment um so how do you find these deals yeah it's interesting i mean at seed there there are a lot of a lot of deals um and and as every venture capitalist knows the funnel closes quite quite aggressively um, as you go through and so a lot of our deals come from entrepreneurs um either entrepreneurs that we've backed entrepreneurs we've met that we've stayed in touch with that we get along with well or entrepreneurs that we just know through our networks and and i'd probably say that that is the kind of top uh channel through which we receive the deals we have through our website triple point www.triplepoint.vc we have a form on there Uh, any entrepreneur can contact us we try and get back to everyone you know we're not somebody who says oh we need a warm introduction in order to um 
look at a deal. Um, it, yes, it's it can be time consuming to go back to every deal, but ultimately you get some fantastic deals from international entrepreneurs who might not have grown up with a London network. And so very important that we're open in that sense. And that, and to be honest, that sort of generalist uh, stream of deal flow uh, spans everything from the website through to events, through through to general PR, through to us trawling through doing research on various startup databases or a company's house or going to Google Campus and sniffing out the one or two guys sitting in the corner to see what they're up to. So, um, you know, it's, it's quite a wide variety. We get a lot of deal flow ourselves just as we're a seed fund. But yeah, those, if you were to split them as kind of direct and indirect, the kind of direct deal flow is through that the founder network. Um, and that's certainly the quickest way into us would be to reach out to a portfolio company of ours, um, if, if you know them, or, or to speak to a founder who has previously been a seed founder because, or, you know, Series A plus now, because they might well have met us, um, or, or just to go through the website. But it's, um, it's pretty organic now it's about staying out there and staying open for business and particularly right now at the moment i mean with covid a lot of people ask a question you know are funds still investing i mean we closed a deal two weeks ago we're going to close a deal this month and um and we've got a few more in the hopper ready to go to IC. In fact, just before this call, I was doing my C paper. So definitely still open for business. Um, have you seen um, a change in your deal flow since this pandemic has started? Have you n- noticed like a, a trend from maybe a month ago or so? I'd probably say we're we're, we're a bit busier than we were. There's definitely... Um, more deals coming through and and that's and that's not just people looking for bridge rounds i think we we were featured in an article that was said that we were one of the active funds in covid and that's led to people showing us their businesses so i would say across the board there is more deal flow in terms of what we're looking for we still want a diversified portfolio if we're looking at health tech business the key question at the moment is if it's a COVID-specific business, I know it feels like we're in COVID forever right now, locked in our homes, but hopefully a few months' time, we'll look back and, and think, oh, wasn't that a crazy time? And at, at that point, is the business now that looks like a fantastic COVID-related business going to be still a strong grower for the next few years? So if its uptake is being catalyzed, for example, in the NHS right now, who have completely liberalized their procurement processes, a business that was previously tapped into selling the NHS with a network now has a very aggressive and attractive scaling opportunity. That sort of business that will probably be solving something related to COVID is certainly of increased interest. But a business that has a shooting star product that fundamentally doesn't have long-term growth opportunities is probably not something that is right for our funds. It's still an incredible product, but it's probably just not right for our funds. So I'd probably say overall deal flows up. Focus on healthcare is really on the fundamentals still and and just how can you take advantage of, of COVID. And there have been some really interesting travel opportunities that right now are naturally facing a bit of a crunch but were fundamentally great businesses with solid founders. And those businesses are businesses that we're thinking about hard and thinking, is this a deal right now? That would be a good deal to do for the founder, for us, and just looking forward in a few years' time for, for that company itself. 
Obviously, the situation is quite different from a stock market crash. But we were, were talking offline how brilliant companies that we see today were founded during the stock market crash. That the same will happen during COVID. That you know a lot of brilliant minds, brilliant people are being furloughed or have time now to explore ideas that they might not have done previously. Do you think we're going to be having the next? Airbnb and Dropbox built during this time? More than anything, if you cut out commute time and you allow everyone to work from home, and so long as they can separate themselves from their work, which I know some people do, there's definitely more time to think. Despite what people say, there's more time to think because you have that time which you're not on your feet on the train or whatever. I think that it's inevitable some people take this 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 time as an opportunity to start their businesses. And if they do that, come sadly, I really think really sadly, coming out of this, there will be a looser labour market and it will be easier to find talented people to join your startup. And so those businesses have the potential to then exponentially grow with a combination of great team and a great idea founded at a time when you know, there was less competition around. Obviously, it's too hard to say. I, I'd love to say now five years from now there's going to be a load of great opportunities that are going to get founded now and then I can look back at it and say I called it then um <laughs> but but you know the reality is, is no one knows no one has a crystal ball that the, the fundamentals are there that this could be even better than 2007-8 for new founders because of that opportunity to think and to articulate both their value proposition and also get hold of decision makers whilst selling might be in the short term difficult. I certainly think my anecdotal experience has been people are more accessible now than they were a month and a half ago. Crisis not only brings people together, but a crisis where you're sitting in front of your kitchen table all day, you know, you can't say you've got back-to-back meetings all the time because the chance of that's low. And so people actually are more accessible. And I think that's brilliant for a founder who wants to do some quick market research. Uh, I now spoke to a founder only yesterday. He said that he went on a Facebook group and he said, hey guys, I need four people to talk to me about this. Three hours later, he had a Zoom call with five people doing some product testing. I mean, that sort of availability, that human availability is really important for product development and, and certainly has increased in this crisis. And to be frank, the businesses that have have been found in the last couple of years. The ones that come out of this, the other side, completely intact, um, will be in a, a brilliant position to, you know, capitalise on what will be a shocked market and particularly well-capitalised venture-backed businesses um, who obviously have a, a bit of runway. Will, will find that they might be in a better world for them um, in six months' time. Uh, it's too early to tell, but wouldn't that be a great silver lining there in all of this chaos? we were able to say that some amazing new businesses that were European were founded, you know, European unicorns. What happened in 2008 with all the US unicorns is going to happen now with the European ones. We certainly have the funding market for it. So why, why couldn't it happen? I'd love it to happen. That would be really nice. 
there's definitely one sector that's going to be quite hard hit at all of this. It's going to be the cafe and restaurant sector. And you saw, you know, I think it was at Carluccio's that's, you know, went into administration. And some of these businesses like Carluccio's, probably good one, mom and pop stores, but some of the bigger chains were probably already financially weak. And what that will mean is a real opportunity for some new businesses to come through that will be really promising. So hopefully a year and a half, two years from now, we'll be saying, oh my goodness, uh, that food I ate was fantastic. And it was in an old car Lucio's restaurant where I maybe wouldn't have gone before so um, so you know there, there is you know a real opportunity in that sector as well like people it's gonna it's gonna create a real opportunity for for food and food and beverage uh startups I for think. sure yeah does if anyone has a restaurant idea think you're onto something guys start thinking <laughs> and if you want a fun a fun called in Bieber is brilliant um uh, they're brilliant you fun. get them on <laughs> yeah yeah you, right, yeah you should <laughs> yeah they're great guys in bb yeah and they, they backed uh farmer jay if you know farmer jay i don't know farmer jay what's farmer jay uh, farmer jay is a restaurant in the city which i took a picture of about two months ago because it's the definition of product market fit you walk there at lunchtime and there is a row of people trying to go into the restaurant probably about 30 people deep and then you go inside and they've got a queue spiraling around like an s and you're just like jesus christ this must be 70 people queuing up for this food that's product market fit what does it sell chicken ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah <I'm> <laughs> <laughs> the fancy windows are we talking? Uh, no, I, I'm underplaying it. It's, it's, it's good. It's very good. It's very good food. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we don't invest in, in food and beverage as in as in food service. In fact, we do actually have a, a food business that we invested in, Livia's, which I don't know whether you know. It's a phenomenal vegan, vegan food business. I mean, founder is a force of nature, really astute. It's been growing over 100% year on year for the last three years. And it's an incredible business selling effectively vegan takes on kind of UK classics, like the shortbread. Instead of the millionaire short shortbread, she has like a vegan version of that. And so oh, I've uh, had those. I'm like obsessed with them. Does she have like caramel balls and like... That's it. Oh my goodness. They're so good. Yeah, I know which ones, which, which ones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, there. it's a brilliant business. And so that's actually in our impact fund because obviously what she's trying to focus on is A, healthy eating, but also lower sugar and all that yeah. side of things. And so our B2B fund, it has Quick Genius, obviously technology. It has Haydoc, which is a, a med tech business, which is it's effectively a patient management system for private doctors. So it's SaaS. Um, we had a Depto that got sold to Degreed in December. That's an HR tech business, Degreed obviously being the U.S., venture-backed SaaS business. But so, you know, you've got typical SaaS businesses in that fund, but then our impact fund has some really interesting businesses in them that, you know, are trying to tackle some very large problems like Thrift and, and Libya's. That's super cool. And, and it leads quite nicely onto the question, which I think you've kind of already answered, but it's good to clarify. So are you happy to move on to question time? <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. Okay. So this question's from Dave. Uh, Triple point I see is doing work for the NHS and they make sure to point out that their semi-ESG mindset would be cool to know whether they plan on creating a proper impact fund or are they happy to keep their structure. But you do have an impact fund, right? So Yeah, yeah. So we have an impact, we have a dedicated venture impact fund, which is the fund I described there. 
And the reason why Dave correctly picked up on the kind of ESG thing is because across Triple Point's business, ESG is one of our, well, impact specifically is what we call it. Impact has a has a core focus in, in uh, to our investment strategy. Uh, all of our investment papers, we discuss the ESG implications of every deal. Uh, not just because it's topical, but ultimately capital is what's going to fund the innovations that will say, you know, solve climate change, will prevent inequality in education or inequality in incomes or or improve health outcomes. So, so it's really important that investors are thinking about that in every investment they're doing. And actually, I think whilst it's great that we're doing that, I think, as a person, I think it's great. I, I, you know, I don't think we're alone. I think I think a lot of funds now are thinking about how to be responsible investors. Um, and I think that's a great thing. And, you know, we're leading charge and, and you know, every fund that we meet that's doing that, we, you know, we, we're really happy that that's the way things are moving. But, um, but yeah, we've had that. We've had our impact EIS fund since uh, 2017. So, you know, it's, it'll be its third birthday this year. That's awesome. And I totally agree that you can invest and think about the positive impact your investment's going to be making, um, especially in the technology world where there's so many possibilities that you can use it for good. Um, yeah. So yeah, totally agree. One more question from me, just for our listeners. Are you hiring at the moment? We are not hiring in the Ventures team, but we, we will be re-looking at it again in March next year, 2021. You were mentioning before how uh, a good venture team almost has to be like the Avengers, the different superpowers, different backgrounds. So perhaps someone wanting or interested in learning more and applying for next year a role has a different kind of background, but is there any other tips uh, that you would say would make a good addition to your team, the kind of skills you're looking for? Yeah, I think that in terms of what it takes to apply, not just to us, but to, to other people. You can come from any background, but as a fundamental, what you're doing every day is looking at new businesses. You get used to looking at just, oh, this business from scratch, what do they do? Building them from the ground up in your mind. If that sounds like something you naturally enjoy, then venture capital's for you. Yeah, venture capital's got a bit of a cool thing about it at the moment. I'm sure that'll pass. But but you know the people that really stay in venture for the long run are the people that fundamentally get a kick from understanding how to sell to people. How do you build a product that people actually love? How do you continue to grow it in a market like the market we have now? Like if those are the questions you're asking yourself, then you could probably do VC. And the key thing to, to bring out in, in an interview process and also your CV is that interest in, in how business fundamentally works. And it doesn't mean that you have to have had your own business, and although that that's awesome. Uh, and it doesn't mean you have to have done an MBA, certainly not. But but it does mean that you have to be thinking about how what levers fundamentally uh, make a business successful. And and actually, if you're working right now, you're not a university, and you're currently in a job. You know, are you sitting there thinking this business is doing that wrong or this wrong? Think what? How can this business improve? That's a great mindset. Uh, it's a dangerous mindset as well <laughs> if you don't run your own business, um, but it's a uh, it's a really useful mindset to adopt because that's the mindset that VCs have. It's all about how can we help improve a business or or learn from somebody who's doing it right. Great, great tip there. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Seb, for coming on. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, Lots of amazing content there that I think both founders and anyone wanting to get into VC take on board. Yeah, so thank you so much. Seb, thanks again for for, (laughs) for spending your time with us. And yeah, to all our listeners, it's been obviously, you know, great to have you in this um, very uncertain time. Please continue to follow um, our podcast. Check us out on Twitter at associated underscore pod. And yeah, we'll, we'll he- see you guys next time. Yes. Oh, and one more thing. Um, we have a uh, Notion page, guys. So do check that out, which has got all the terminologies that you might not know about and some interesting resources about COVID we've popped on um, from an entrepreneur's perspective and, and what the government's doing. So do check that out if of interest. Thank you so much. Goodbye.